Welcome to episode 43 of Brody Sports Talk. This is being released May 27th of 2020. My name is Caleb Walgren and I'm joined by my co-host Sean Morgan. And uh, just a, another exciting week of making left turns and seeing some footy. Uh, Sean, what... what any anything that that you want to just start off with as an opening comment today? I mean, I don't know. Hopefully, uh, hopefully our podcast goes a little better than Chase Elliott's weekend. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's uh, it's slim pickings right now. I mean, at least Bundesliga is reasonably exciting. I can't uh, I can't say enough about how how happy I am to at least be able to uh, go on the soccer subreddit and check out some, some highlights in the middle of my work day. Any highlights is better than zero highlights. So I will totally jump on board that for you. Uh, That being said, let's do a quick rundown and, get on with the show. So uh, we have some different events to recap or preview or just kind of talk about in the world of sports this past week. Uh, Then we have 300 seconds of soccer. This day in sports history, an NFL career throwback that's going to throw it back to the defensive side of the ball. And then we're looking at the first team of the AFC North. Not the NFC North. That was last week's episode. Please listen to episode 42 if you want to hear that. (laughs) Uh, But this is the AFC North. So if you are a fan of the Ravens, Browns, Bengals, or Steelers, that is going to be what you want to hear. Uh, That being said, let's jump in with uh, a bit of a somber note. We had... uh, a couple of great coaches pass away this past week. Mm-hmm. Um, the <clears throat> unfortunate loser in the NBA Finals and the Last Dance, uh, Jerry Sloan, the former coach of the Jazz, long, long time coach of the Jazz, uh, passed away this past week. And then uh, the one that I know rocked uh, several Brodies in our area. Uh, Eddie Sutton, the former coach of the Oklahoma State Cowboys, amongst many other collegiate teams, um, both passing away. Uh, anytime you hear about someone passing away, we know that life is precious. And uh, it, it always seems a bit tragic to see anyone go, even if, I mean, both of these were, were older gentlemen. Uh, anything you want to add on either Sloan or Sutton there? I mean, I think like many people uh from our era right i was uh, i was like 11 12 um when uh during the 98 finals and i was actually pulling for the jazz i feel i felt like especially in my neighborhood amongst all my friends i was one of the few who just really thought that john stockton was was like the coolest here's this here's this skinny white guy who looks like he could be like my teacher um out there uh you know playing ball with with michael jordan um no i mean having lived in salt lake for a while um sloan is looked at uh, as being virtually immortal um people have rained nothing but the highest praise 
on his career and the um, just the type of person that he was. Uh, I know that that when he stepped down originally, I know there was a lot of like conflict with players, and there was an idea that he had maybe had lost his uh, he had lost his touch and lost his connection. But I don't think from a fan's perspective and from a city's perspective that he ever lost the love of Salt Lake. Uh, and I know Eddie Sutton has been maligned for, you know, a good portion of his career. It's not like the guy was perfect by any stretch. Uh, I know a lot of OSU fans wish that, you know, he had, uh, he had taken them to, uh, to the promised land back in, I think it was 04, right? 04. Um, and yeah, he's, you know, he made a multiple mistakes in all different stretches of his life, but his on the court accomplishments are amongst the best. It's a shame that he didn't get into the hall uh, at, until pretty much, you know, right when he was on his deathbed in hospice care and, you know, with everything happening with COVID, then he's not able to go through and actually be inducted um, or go through the ceremony while he's still alive. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I know that all of our Oklahoma listeners, uh, at least if you're, uh, if orange runs through your veins, it was a bit of a solemn, solemn occasion. Um, I would definitely say, I know probably when Oklahoma State basketball was at its peak for me is when he was there uh it was right before his uh time ended as coach um the 2003-4 season where he literally got them to the final four um that was with uh big country and tony allen and desmond mason i believe was on that team it was mm-hmm. uh, a stacked team and but it was definitely an exciting one uh just to to keep going here, uh, so uh, this may be some breaking news to you as well. We're going to talk about the week in the life of Chase Elliott. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, Chase Elliott, we basically called him out last week. We said potential future Hall of Famer Chase Elliott, put putting some respect on that name. And wow. then in the Wednesday night Darlington race, Kyle Busch just makes a pretty dumb error and came in and it looked like it might have been intentional of course he came out afterwards and said it was not because in general if you're going after someone and trying to make them wreck you very well could wreck as well so i don't know that there's too much intentional wrecks in nascar but chase elliott his car smashed he was had just been in first recently in the race it was getting close to the end and of course he uh stood at the side of the track and gave him the your number one middle finger salute and that was that was wednesday then we got to sunday (sighs) sunday was also crazy he was pouring it in at the end of that coca-cola 600 he was leading probably roughly the last i want to say 40 laps of that race Mm -hmm. uh at least two seconds ahead of brad keselowski and 
two seconds is a ton when you're running into lap cars and everything like that with two laps to go. And of course his teammate lost a tire. Chase came into the pits, uh, ended up getting dropped to ninth because of all the cars that stayed out. And he fought his way back to third, but there was no way he was passing all eight cars with two laps on a green, white, checkered finish like NASCAR overtime does it. Uh, I do want to thank everyone for responding to our poll on Twitter. I did toss it out. Do you like NASCAR overtime? Uh, we got a little bit more no's than yeses. It was 59 no, 41 yes. Um, so you guys are just saying we shouldn't be a NASCAR podcast? Uh, I don't know. Maybe they just don't like the overtime segment is what I'm hoping is that uh, it just feels weird. You know, you see someone who's basically put the race away. Someone randomly in the field has an accident and they're basically going to lose because of it. Cause even if he didn't pit, if he stays out, the cars behind him are all going to go get fresh tires and he's going to lose spots on the track. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a lose-lose situation. Uh, but did you know Chase Elliott won Tuesday night's race, the truck race? Mm-hmm. Uh, one spot ahead of Kyle Busch. Uh, the kind of odd, somewhat potentially karmic moment, uh, you know, being able to finish one spot ahead of the person who wrecked you nearly a week ago. And that's part of what's going on with NASCAR right now. There is just a ton of races, ton of people driving on the track. Uh, I don't think Chase Elliott has driven in the truck series in years from what they had said. <laughs> in a minute. So thinking, I'm like, I swear that boy got his start, but I, I mean, when you're that good, you generally don't remain in truck series for too long or you don't really remain in any of those, any of those smaller cups. I don't know, man. I, I feel bad for him, right? Because, I mean, there's just a lot of pent-up frustration, especially when you're that close, um, you know, to victory lane. And first you get it taken away from you, and then just circumstances outside of your control. That's, that is one of the kind of the unfortunate pitfalls about the way that those green-white checkers end up working. But... I mean, it's the nature of the beast, and you know, I'm I'm sure that uh, NASCAR's actually pretty excited about all of the. I won't even say controversy, right? It's not really controversy. It's more just drama, and right now in a world that desperately needs um, drama that isn't related to to politics. Uh, it's nice for for NASCAR to step up and give us some of that that real down home sports conflict that we all know and love. Uh, also, just a couple of things as far as NFL is concerned. Uh, the Jets this past week signed Joe Flacco <laughs> uh, to be their backup, although he probably will not start the season as a backup uh, because he said he's going to miss the beginning of the season. Uh, and the Seahawks signed Carlos Hyde, who also had been hurt. So I'm wondering if we're maybe going to see, see some of these, hey, that guy had been hurt, you know, we see a little bit of movement as far as what's happening there with 
you know, NFL free agency, you know, maybe Cam will start getting seen by some doctors and, you know, maybe we'll get to have a little bit more NFL news as certain states are loosening restrictions on all of this. It's true. Do you think Cam's going to get a, like, going to be on a roster start the season? To start the season, yes. I think there will be some sort of a preseason injury somewhere where they go, "Mm, we got to get Cam in and see what can happen. I don't know that he will like it, but it will be something. Uh, The other thing that I have to bring up just, and I don't even know if Sean is aware is uh, all of the uh, craziness that's happened in the college football world uh, via video games with Barstool Big Cat, being a, the head coach of Tennessee football uh, with Air Dogs. Are, yeah, are you did, you not, that? Did, did you not see some of my posts on Twitter? No, I have not seen those. Oh, maybe I'm pretty sure that I was sharing it. I, I must have missed it. My bad. Yeah, um, I've been, I've been, yeah. Like what? Been you trying to put up 50 burgers. Uh, it's, I, I see you put one a few days ago when yeah, uh, shortly after he had joined there. there um, I know actually <laughs> as we're recording too. it, as we're recording this, it has, um, he's streaming a game right now, uh, Tennessee against Georgia. So hopefully, uh, you know, just pulling up on Go Twitter, it says top. that Tennessee's up 28, 23. Uh, Air Doug's looking for his first potential national championship. Uh, also, after he got the job, he was tweeted that by Lane Kiffin that said, hey, just so you know, they get kind of angry if you go there for one year and leave the next year. I so, hate you, Lane. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like it's one of those things where Lane Kiffin's kind of able to just say, you know what, that was my bad, and Lane, just have a little bit of light humor with it. Lane Kiffin is an a, has an A-plus Twitter game. He's a B plus coach and a D minus person. He didn't give him an F on any scale there, people. I, I'm I'm a little surprised. Hey, I don't know if it's just a little bit of a. I, I still I still look at that Alabama game as a, you know, as as close to of a win as we've gotten in a long time. That's fair. Uh, that being said. Uh, before we go into becoming an esports podcast, let's go over and do 300 seconds of soccer. Woohoo! <clears throat> righty. So, last week, week before, we've been chatting about good old Bundesliga. So let's uh, let's start us off there. <clears throat> so I mentioned that the league title race was looking pretty exciting. Well, uh, things have kind of teetered off a bit, I think. Um, so Tuesday, uh, Bayern got crucial three points against Dortmund. Um, goal from Joshua Kimmich, uh, chipping the keeper from just outside the box, and that was just enough to take the uh, 1-0 victory. The match, honestly, was kind of pedestrian. Um, Bayern you know, dominated midfield possession, uh, especially in the second half. They just completely suffocated Dortmund. Um, the, Dortmund was barely able to get the ball passed, I would say, maybe like two thirds of the field um, before Byron would just press and then uh, they would lose possession. So Bayern Munich is now seven points ahead of Dortmund with six matches remaining. 
And they have 10 points on Leipzig, but Leipzig still has a game in hand. Uh, now, in seasons past, this is the point where Bayern Munich usually holds steady. Um, but they've got matches against Leverkusen and uh, Mönchengladbach. Uh, <clears throat> I know I butchered that again. Uh, left. Any points dropped at this point could mean that either Dortmund, Leipzig, or Leverkusen could sneak up a little bit in the table if they have a good run to close the season. So Bayern can't let up. Now, elsewhere in the league over the weekend, uh, Leverkusen took a 3-1 victory Saturday over Mönchengladbach, um, which I called a 2-0 victory, so I still got the goal differential. Um, Bayern had a 5-2 win over Eintracht Frankfurt, and Dortmund 2-0 win over Wolfsburg. Uh, Leipzig dominated Mainz 5-0 on Sunday. So there's one of the things that I said you would see heading into Bundesliga or really soccer booting back up is a lot of, a lot of sloppy play. And we're seeing a lot of these lower tier teams struggling greatly um, to like perform. And with the rapid pace that Bundesliga is trying to close out the season, I, I have to imagine this is going to continue. Uh, there are more matches played today, if you're listening to this on Wednesday. Uh, and then this weekend, as the German League tries to go ahead and finish everything off. Now, let's uh, let's go back in time a little bit. <clears throat> let's talk about the 2008-2009 Barcelona team, and specifically the treble. Now, this is the 11th anniversary um, of the first treble in La Liga history. Now, for those of you who aren't aware... A treble in soccer is where a club wins its domestic league, domestic cup, and whatever European cup that it's in. Usually it's going to be considered Champions League or the Europa League. Now, this particular squad won pretty much everything that they could. They won the Supercopa, which is kind of the equivalent of um, the, the League Cup in English football, if you're familiar with that. Um, the uh, Super Cup, the UFA Super Cup. Uh, the FIFA Club World Cup, the Copa del Rey, which is the equivalent of like the FA Cup in English football, um, La Liga, which is their domestic league, and the Champions League. Okay. Like pretty much everything that they could possibly win, they won. <clears throat> this was Pep Guardiola's first year managing. Um, and you may have heard some of these names. Lionel Messi, uh, Andre Iniesta, uh, Xavi, Thierry Henry, Carles Puyol, Sergio Busquet. Um, Dani Alves, like all of these players are highly decorated, um, have had fantastic careers for both club and country. Um, this was the heart of Spanish football dominance, uh, where Tiki Taka, which is something I talked about on a prior podcast, um, for Johan Cruyff, uh, go back and listen. I don't remember what episode it was. Um, it's where Tiki Taka reigns supreme. This was a Bar Barcelona side that topped the legal table starting in week nine, never let up. They finished nine points ahead of Real Madrid, plus 70 goal differential. Okay. En route to winning the Champions League, they knocked off Olympic Lyonnais, uh, Bayern Munich, Chelsea, and finally they took down an Alex or Sir Alex Ferguson led Manchester United, which at the time featured a certain future La Liga star by the name of Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, this Barcelona team is probably considered the most stacked and most accomplished side in European history. Finally, <clears throat> let's talk about the 2017 FA Cup. This was the year that Arsene Wegener became the most successful manager in the history of the world's oldest football competition. 
leading up to the final, we had taken down kind of some middling teams, right? Some lower, lower tier, lower league teams. We beat Manchester United or Manchester City in the quarterfinals, or sorry, semifinals. But Chelsea, our opponent, had a much tougher draw. They had to face Wolves, Man United, and Tottenham to make the final. This is our third FA Cup in four years. Right around this time, this was when Chelsea still had our number and was still beating the pants off of us every, like, twice a year. Um, early in the season, they beat us 3-1. They were in first place in the league. They won the league. We ended up finishing fifth. This was our worst year under Wegener period. Um, most pundits, fans, onlookers had completely written us off for the FA Cup. This was going to be a, a smear, right? Expectations were low. But right out of the gate, fourth-minute goal, Alexis Sanchez put us up top 1-0. We dominated the first half, held possession, kept the Blues off the board thanks to otherworldly play from the newbie Rob Holding, um, but also the veteran. And this was like the second game that he played for us this season or that season per Mertesacker. Second half, second yellow on Victor Moses. Chelsea went down to 10 men. And though a Diego Costa, who was our arch nemesis for a long time, would equalize at the 76th minute, Arsenal hero and future Juventus player Aaron Ramsey would spot the back of the net on a header, from a beautiful cross from Olivier Giroud, who actually eventually played for the Blues, um, and we would go on to win 2-1. This gave Wagner FA Cup number seven and Arsenal number 13, both English football records, and would further cement Wagner's place as one of the greatest managers of all time, and that is my probably 400 seconds of soccer. I realize I may have gone over a little bit. That's all right. I'll let you borrow a little bit of time from this day in sports history because you did get uh, some good sports history in there. That I did. Uh, this day in sports history is going back further uh, because on the, this day in 1968, uh, a legend, George Hallis, retired from coaching. Uh, he had 318 wins, 148 losses, and 31 ties, which probably sounds a little ridiculous. Uh, he also won six championships as early as 1921 and as late in the career as 1963. That's nuts. So he won some in the 20s, 30s, three in the 40s, and then once again in the 60s. Unfortunately, he, he did lose in... Uh, 1950 when he was in the playoffs that year. He so, was 26 years old when they win in, in 21. Okay. That is, that is crazy. All right. Like, like I, I don't, I, I can't even imagine like coaching an NFL team at, at 20. I mean, it, it made Sean McVay look like a chump. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, just in general, uh, one of the players, coaches, that if he didn't exist, the NFL today may not be as we know it. So uh, kudos to, to, to George Hallis. Um, I know uh, he passed away back in 1983, but if you see, uh, I believe it has the GSH, uh, sometimes in the, the Bears armband, uh, that is referring to George Stanley Hallis and co-founder of the NFL. Like, it's just kind of ridiculous when you look back at some of those, those traits. Um, the other thing that I have from, for this day in sports history uh, is 
you know, we've talked about racing. Usually Memorial Day weekend, you get the Coke 600 and you get the Indy 500. Uh, Indy 500, of course, has been postponed, but it comes up around this day many times. And that's where Dario Franchitti won it, uh, both in 2007 and in 2012. And I did a little bit of research on those. In 2007, uh, they ended up having to cancel the race partway through due to rain, but they had gotten enough of it in. So when the caution hit, he was leading, so he got the W. Not necessarily the most exciting way to win, but a win is a win, and when it's in the biggest race in that sport, you yeah, be happy about it. Uh, the other one was in 2012, where he won, and uh, it was his only win of the year, and it was the last win of his career. Uh, in 2013, he ended up having a, a serious crash uh, where it said that he had a spinal fracture, a right ankle fracture, and a concussion. So open wheel racing is, is definitely not for the faint of heart. And Dario Fancredi was one of the best for a long time. Um, we, we just want to give him a, a cool shout out here from the Brodies on the podcast. Uh, anything you wanted to add about George or Dario? Um. Just a uh, shout out to uh, Dario's failed attempt to uh, to uh, turn left in some uh, in some stock cars. I think he did it like a decade ago or so. I thought did he see was, that he uh, won at Watkins was Glen, and I thought that yeah. was funny uh, because that's the one that has all the corners. Um, um, thought he was Juan Pablo crack. Montoya there. Not not quite. Not quite. Um, let's go ahead and jump into our NFL career throwback. Uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, the minister of defense, Reggie White, Woo-hoo. uh, Reggie White, man, what is there to say about him? <sighs> There's so much. So first off, he's from Tennessee, which already endears him to one of the podcast members here. And it said that in his senior year in college, he had 140 tackles and 10 sacks and was a Tennessee All-American and was the number one recruit in Tennessee. He went and played at the University of Tennessee and he set a record in his senior year with 15 sacks in a season. It's still a University of Tennessee record and I don't know if anyone's going to touch it. I know you guys are bringing in some solid recruits. Uh, if you can get the Reggie White record, uh, because his number 92 is retired by the Tennessee Vols. Yes, it is. Uh, we'll find that many times as we go through what happened in his career. <laughs> so, you know, he's a Tennessee boy. And when he left college, he actually went to the USFL. He was a member of the Memphis Showboats, which to be honest is a name better than about most of the names in the NFL. Uh, by far, far more uh, exciting. It definitely think, sounds like an XFL name though. You don't uh, think the Browns are, are exciting? Does the no, Browns I do not. not do it for you? I guess UPS isn't going to sponsor our podcast. 
no. Um, but so he was there for two years. Said he had 23 and a half sacks. If there's anything that you need to know about Reggie White is that he was a sack machine. And we're going to see that more uh, as, you know, the USFL collapsed after those two years. Uh, a certain current president got involved in the league, and who knows if that's why it collapsed or not. Uh, sorry, I'll keep the political comments aside. <laughs> um, but it collapsed, and White took a deal with the Eagles, the Philadelphia Eagles. It said that he had a four-year, $1.85 million deal, which sounds completely ridiculous. Do you know how many sacks he had his first year with the Eagles? First year with the Eagles? Um... We'll say 12. 13. And and that was in 13 games. Oddly enough, if you look at Reggie White's tenure as with the Eagles, which goes through the 92 season, Reggie White averaged more sacks than games. He averaged over a sack a game over an eight-year period which just seems completely baffling, especially to me. I just remember like when, then, when I was first, like, cause I mean, he came and started playing for the Eagles pretty much when I was born. So I, I didn't have the pleasure of, of watching him, you know, until he was like well into playing with Green Bay. But I mean, the fact that in the year I was born in a 12 game season, he had 21 sacks for the year. 21 in a 12 game span like that is keep going keep going no that's that's kind of where i was going to as well is when you think of that season and it being a strike shortened season i think the single season sack record is at 22 and a half still with strahan reggie why would have beaten that if you would have given him like one more game like yeah. <laughs> he didn't even need 16 games if you would have given him 16 games just if we're doing this on average he would have had 28 sacks that year like he was a beast and you know that that he was 26 that was arguably his prime mm-hmm. and of course he missed part of that year just in general you look at what he did. Uh, I saw that he had the NFL record at one point with the Eagles for passes deflected in a season. I know right now when we think of someone who does something like that, it would be JJ Watt. Yep. I mean, Reggie Watt, Reggie White was better than JJ Watt for longer and with less injuries. Like if JJ Watt is who you're comparing him as, as a defensive end, you're not doing a fair enough job. Reggie White was more of a defensive end like Lawrence Taylor was a linebacker. Like, you you didn't mess with him. Uh, he did sign with the Packers in 93. And consi- cons- so the, the worst season he had for sacks was in 94 when he had eight. Oh, darn. Like, eight sacks is a great year for pretty much any defensive end. 
of course, I will personally remember the 96 season because that's the one where he helped the Packers win Super Bowl 31. And it's arguable that Reggie White really should have been the MVP of that game because he, he recorded several sacks. I want to say he had three sacks just in the Super Bowl. Uh, it was one of the years where they started letting people trying to go online and vote early. And because of that, it went to uh, Desmond Howard, the kick returner. Of all the people to have the Super Bowl MVP eliteness, uh, Brett Favre is not on that list. Um <laughs> And like I said, I would argue Reggie White should be on that list. Three sacks, I'm all in the fourth quarter. He he sacked Bledsoe on back-to-back plays. Just completely a beast. Um, and he did come back and play for the Panthers for one year in 2000 after he had stopped playing in uh, 98 for the Packers. And it's just one of those things where when you look at his list and you see that he was an eight-time first-team All-Pro, uh, two-time Defensive Player of the Year, um, and of course, he was a five-time second-team All-Pro, so 13 times on the All-Pro team, which is not an easy spot to get in. He was a member of the All-Decade team of the 80s and the 90s. He's retired by the Eagles, the Packers, and the Vols. Like, his jersey's retired by the Memphis Showboats. Not really, because they don't exist. Uh, But they would have, because he was probably the best player they ever had. Um, Just somewhat ridiculous to think of what he did. And uh, I I am a little saddened that I I didn't get to catch a lot of what he did on the field. Uh, Anything uh, you want to add about... Reggie? I mean, you've pretty much said, like, said it all. I, I want to highlight specifically that um, I think a lot of what he's accomplished on the field, like, got most of the spotlights. But uh, I, I want to highlight something off the field that he was well known for. Uh, Two things, actually. One, he was, and I'm sure it's something that you're familiar with, um, he was heavily involved um, in Christian ministry. But the thing I want to highlight is he was also a professional wrestler. Uh, So, uh, WrestleMania 11, look it up. Uh, I think he he also wrestled for WCW as well, like a couple years later. But I mean, uh, yeah, I guess Super Bowl champions and professional wrestlers. We've got Reggie White and Rob Gronkowski and whoever else on that list. So uh, definitely an interesting mm-hmm. list of people. The uh, the other thing too is he was Tennessee's sack leader, all time sack leader for a long time. Um, but do you know? Uh, I, I will give you a hint. The person who had more sacks to close out his Tennessee Balls career also has played for the Philadelphia Eagles and is currently playing for the Philadelphia Eagles. Do you know who it is? 
Absolutely. It's uh, Derek Barnett. I almost yep. brought that up and got it in there, but <laughs> it's so tough to say so much about someone and, and then hit some fine-tune the details. Some yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Tennessee has treated Philly right. Absolutely. Uh, that being said, we're going to take a quick moment and pause, and we'll be right back with our first team AFC North selections. Welcome back to Brody Sports Talk. Again, my name is Caleb Walgren, and we're uh, I've got Sean Morgan with me. We're going to look at that first team AFC North. Sure. And uh, we like to specialize with the specialists to start this. So uh, the return man, Deontay Johnson of the Steelers. Uh, we also have long snapper Morgan Cox of the Ravens. Uh, the punter, Kevin Huber of the Bengals who I remember distinctly getting stepped on by Antonio Brown a few years ago. Um, and the kicker, Justin Tucker of the Ravens. Uh, so with all due apologies to the Browns, you do not get to be one of the specialists. And uh, not so special. my, my, my heart hurts a little bit just because uh, as a Nebraska Cornhusker, I, I've got a soft spot for, for Sam Coke. Uh there in Baltimore as a punter, but I I didn't really have a lot of quibbling with this list when I was looking through the teams. Um, was anything you want to kind of add or go over with those candidates? I mean, Tucker. I mean, clearly the best kicker in the league or division, best kicker in the league most accurate kicker in NFL history probably will go down as one of the best, if not the best kicker in NFL history. So kind of hard to, to exclude him. Um, Morgan Cox, 2019 pro bowl uh, from Tennessee, went to Tennessee. Uh, Deontay Johnson might've been the weird one. There really weren't a lot of strong, consistent returners. Most of the teams when I was looking it up um, usually had a different kicker and punt, ret- kick and punt returner. And none of them were really outstanding. Um, Deontay Johnson did have a, um, over 12 yards of return. He mostly returned punts last year. Uh, so I would imagine, you know, I mean, he had a 85 yard touchdown return explosive guy. So I felt like he would be the best, uh, best back there uh, taking returns. I really wasn't, I, I know, I know the, the me taking Huber may have been a little, like, uh, hit, hit a sore spot. Man, the Ravens don't really punt. <laughs> like they didn't really punt last year. Uh, Bengals punted a lot. Um, Huber's a little younger, and uh, I like I, I made this entire list expecting, you know, to build on 2020 versus just saying what have they done over the last year, last three years, five years. So I feel like Huber's probably going to have the more impactful season uh, out of all four punters to pick from. And that's fair. I, I understood where you were coming from. I just had to give you a little bit of a hard time there because uh, it's always just fun. Uh, moving into the secondary, uh, I'll start with the lesser controversial choice of the safeties. We'll <laughs> go with uh, Sean Williams, the safety of the Bengals, uh, looking through the strong safeties. Uh, not necessarily anything that would I would put up as a strong argument against Sean Williams. Uh, just seems like a, a really strong case there. Uh, free safety is probably the – it's just, a, in general, it's a great debate. Uh, you have Minka Fitzpatrick and Earl Thomas. Uh, why don't you tell the people which one you chose? 
All right. So before I do that, Sean Williams, I wanted to say, first of all, the strong safeties in the division, definitely not as good as the free or not as notable as the free safeties. Um, but Sean Williams had 114 combined tackles last year, 80 solo. Uh, he was probably, uh, he's been the staple of the Bengals defense for a long time. I think he's on their decades all pro list. Uh, fantastic player. Um, now I need to say that it was extremely difficult leading, leaving Earl Thomas off of this list, but Minka Fitzpatrick showed that last year is the type of career that he's going to have. Um, I know Earl Thomas is one of the best to play at the position, uh, but Minka Fitzpatrick, I think is going to be one of, if not the smartest player on the field at any given time. He has excellent football intuition. You almost never see him responsible for blown coverage. He is amazing at reading routes and understanding um, like wide receiver motions and tendencies. Uh, he is everything that you could ask for in a free safety. And he is young. He is healthy. He is going to have a, an amazing career. And again, I'm basing this off of what I expect for 2020, not what have you done for me over the last five years, 10 years, et cetera. So sorry. Uh, Ravens fans, I, I think Mika Fitzpatrick is the best free safety in the division right now. And he's already having a better offseason. That's all <laughs> I'm going to say about that. But he is definitely having a better offseason. Uh, that being said, going to the corners, uh, we've got purple, black, and gold for both Marlon Humphrey and Marcus Peters. Um, the way Marcus Peters blew up after he got traded there by the Rams, I felt like he was a, a definite inclusion on the list. And Marlon, I would, I definitely would agree with Marlon Humphrey as well. Uh, it's I, probably the people that are just on the outside looking in would be like Denzel Ward out of Cleveland and maybe Joe Hayden, the former Brown current Steeler. I mean, you also have the Bengals who just keep bringing in former Vikings to play cornerback, which I, I don't normally see moves like that across conferences and divisions, but you know, the, the Bengals decided that they like random former Vikings corners. Uh, I, I, I think Humphrey and Peters were definitely uh, the, the way to go here. Uh, what would, it was neck and neck for me with Peters and Ward. Um, for me, Peters had the better, more impactful 2019 season. Um, the Ravens have equipped their defense to deal with pretty much anything anybody can throw at them. Um, and I think that considering they really didn't lose any significant like players in their secondary, that Peters is just going to be able to build off of the year that he had. Uh, so that's the reason why I edged him um, above Ward. And Humphrey just, man, he he is something special. It's an amazing season last year. Um, I know a lot of people considered Marcus Peters to be the best corner in the division. Uh, I think that's that's Humphrey. I know that Humphrey's more of a, sl a slot guy. He's the, he's the guy you put uh, on the quickest wideout. But no, he, he had an amazing three picks, two forced fumbles, 65 combined tackles. Um, 
no, I, I, I think Humphrey is, is an amazing player. And uh, just to move up to linebacker, we see primarily uh, two people in the black and gold. We see Devin Bush Jr. and TJ Watt. Uh, we'll move over to the other outside linebacker spot here in a second. But um, my goodness, have talk about two players that have entered the league in the last couple of years and just completely dominated upon arrival. Uh, I mean, TJ Watts even hosting his own TV show at this point with the other Watts. Uh, I I think those two were were clearly uh, easy choices, even though it is a 4-3. TJ can cover and he can rush. Um, and just to finish out the linebacker group, we also have Matt Judon of the Ravens at the other linebacker spot. Um, no, no Browns, no Bengals. I, I personally didn't see a reason to no. have them in here. Um, I mean, the Ravens and the Steelers' defenses were what kept them notably above the rest of the competition in this division. I agree. So. Uh, I'm, I mean, they're uh, the linebacker. There's a reason why the the Bengals and Browns run four threes is because their linebacker core is not deep, and who they have starting. Um, you know, they're, I would, I would say, consider them bottom 10% talent uh, relative to that position across the NFL. Um, and a lot of linebacker departures, I think, really impacted uh, Judon's inclusion. Um, but, I mean, he had nine and a half sacks, 43 solo tackles, 33 quarterback hits last year. I mean, yeah, the Ravens defense was amazing all around, but he was definitely a key part of it. And I don't think there's really anything that any other pundit um, has like yet to say about the impact that TJ Watt and Devin Bush Jr. have had um, on the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, I just can't believe that the Steelers are that lucky. They've got two of the best linebackers in the NFL. Uh, they're both young, um, incredibly talented they have lucked out. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that it is one of those things where the Steelers, they're, they're known for defense and it's kind of exciting to see some of that reputation coming back with some of the inclusions that we've already seen here. TJ Watt, Devin Bush Jr., Minka Fitzpatrick. I mean, we could be talking about and, all NFL preseason first team. And you could argue that we would be mentioning them at the safety and linebacker positions, mm -hmm. um, at least in the discussion. Uh, moving up to the defensive line, uh, on the outside rushing the passer, we've got Miles Garrett and Carlos Dunlap. Uh, no denying uh, Garrett is obviously the more talented, but uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how he kind of comes back uh, now that he's kind of got that stigma from Angry. the incident this past year. And well, but it's tough when people are watching you even more or watching you, thinking that you are potentially a dirty player. You know, everything that you do gets hyper criticized from there. Um, and then. 
uh, moving to the interior, Geno Atkins and Brandon Williams. I've been a huge Geno Atkins fan for a long time. Um, I thought he was probably arguably the second best D tackle in the division for many years to Haloti Nada. And then Nada moved on and has since retired. But Geno is a force in the middle of their line. Probably been one of the best things going for the Bengals in the mm-hmm. 2010s. Um, I'm thrilled to see his inclusion on this list. Uh, Brandon Williams, I didn't know as much about. Uh, you want to add any more on Williams or in general on that D line? Yeah, I mean, I felt like Garrett was probably a riskier inclusion, um, but I think that you can't ignore the talent and that there are a lot of expectations placed on him uh, as uh, an impactful player for the Browns in their attempt to resurge again. Uh, Dunlap was kind of a weird – I had him and Sam Hubbard kind of neck and neck, um, mostly because Hubbard uh, plays on the right, but I couldn't ignore the – I feel like what's a a bit of a talent gap between the two – uh, Dunlap's a more well-rounded pass rusher, and I felt like that was kind of a more impactful uh, trait at this position. Uh, Geno Atkins, yeah, I 100% agree with you. Been to the Pro Bowl eight times. Uh, he's actually part of the 2010s all-decade team for the NFL. Um, Cameron Hayward was kind of the one I'm like, okay, well, um, I know Hayward had the better year and maybe had the better trajectory, um, but he also plays in a 3-4 and his role is slightly different. So I felt like with the modified 4-3 that the talent gap between the two, or at least the trajectory between the two wasn't that different, and that Geno Atkins would be the better fit here. I know a lot of people may be surprised at Brandon Williams. Uh, he has been moved around a bit. Um, he got lined up at defensive end for a while, but a lot of people have said, a lot of Ravens fans, Ravens pundits uh, have said that uh, nose tackle is easily his best position. Michael Pierce, who kind of fit that role um, for the Ravens, has moved on to the Vikings. And so Williams is probably going to be shifted back here. And based on what he's accomplished at that position, I would actually expect him, considering I am doing the modified 4-3, to be the best fit for this particular scheme. Um, and I would expect some good things out of him coming up this season. Um, one name that I... Uh, didn't see, and I, you know, maybe the the off season trade threw you off a little bit. Uh, were you thinking about Kalei Campbell uh, now on the Ravens? I know the former Jaguar. He's had some great years in Jacksonville, even though people thought he was going to be past his prime. Or were you just? I didn't know if it was a you potentially missed it, or you were thinking that he's old. I mean, he's not, he's not that old. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't, uh, I, I guess he did move over to, uh, to the Ravens. Interesting. I don't know where I would slot him here. Um, I think he would, you would have to argue potentially Dunlop's spot. Yeah, but does but, he play on that side? Is that? I mean, Generally speaking, I'm like pass rushers can play either side, but that's because I tend to just try to load with the best talent. I, I don't have any argument saying that you should have had Kinlay. I think that he – you could argue him in Dunlop. I think that it's 
I think it's a solid list either way. I just was double checking through some of these as we were talking and went, wait, Clay Campbell's in the division? (laughs) (laughs) And it kind of threw me for a second. So I was like, oh, it probably, I don't know. I was just trying to be helpful there. And Um, they they traded him for pennies too. Of course they did. They're the Jaguars. No one wants to be on that team. Um, Then we move over to the offensive line, which is uh, arguably filled the most with the Ravens. And there's a reason for that because they ran for everywhere on the field. They won last year. Um, In general, just in this division, offensive and defensive line, I I felt like they were both really strong. Um, So offensive tackles, You've got Ronnie Staley and Orlando Brown, both of the Ravens. Uh, offensive guard, you picked Joe Batonio and Bradley Bozeman of Batonio of the Browns, Bozeman of the Ravens. And of course, Marquise Pouncey of the Steelers in at center. Uh, it's tough. You've got a lot of talent. You've got uh, at guard, we're leaving out David DeCastro of the Steelers, who's been a, a solid right guard there for a long time. Uh, you've got Alejandro Villanueva. Uh, personally, one of my favorite former Packers that is now the president of the NFL Players Association, J.C. Treader, the center for the Browns. But I, I know you can't really you can't, you can't look past the Pouncey. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a tough one. There's a lot of interesting players that you could have in on this list. And that's, of course – not including uh, the recently retired Marshall Yanda, yep. who is phenomenal. Um, yeah, it's, when, when I was first writing up this list, I went ahead and slotted him in already, not even realizing that he had like announced his retirement. It and I'm going really through, and I, it was in March, so I, I yeah, don't blame I'm, you for that. I'm going through, and I'm like, and I see, I'm like, oh, oh my God, he's he's retired. Like I was going to grab some stats about it, and I'm like, oh. No, okay, well, he's off the list. Um, I mean, I think Batonio may have been a, I don't want to say a shocker, but um, may have been a bit of a weaker selection. I think he's going to have a better 2020. Um, I, I think that um, the Browns have the talent, and on that line, he is easily the best, um, best player. I Pouncey was hard to leave off um, the tackles um, Staley and Brown. I mean, Ravens just had a massive, massive year running the football. Uh, by the way, Orlando Brown uh, originally committed to Tennessee before changing to uh, university of Oklahoma. Just want to, just want to throw some hate his way for that. Um, I felt like the, the line was probably uh, online was probably the toughest um like time that I had going through and trying to decide um, all the names that you mentioned uh, very easily could have inserted into any of these, you know, spots. Pouncey was the only one that I was just like, uh, Pouncey and Brown really um, were the only ones I'm like, okay, you're, you guys are staying. Um, I, I think that Villanueva, I know that there was a lot of hate thrown his way. Um, I mean, the Steelers just had a very, very rough time last year for a lot of different reasons. Uh, on the offensive side of the football. And I would expect that, you know, Villanueva is going to bounce back and have a bit of a rebound year. 
hopefully anyway, for the Steelers' sake. But the talent's there. You just got to make sure the willpower is there. A lot of times with O-line, if they have an off year, sometimes that can mean a dry spell for their career, and that could negatively impact them for you know multiple seasons, and they'll get tossed around the league. Which I feel like O-line is one of those positions where confidence actually plays a huge part, and people really aren't necessarily cognizant of that as much. Um, if you have a rough year and fans look at you like you're, a, you know, your turnstile, then, you know, that you may have that reputation. You may carry that mental weight for a long time. Uh, I just also wanted to toss this at you. Uh, which, if either of the former Alabama offensive tackles, uh, Jonah Williams, of course, he got drafted in the first round by the Bengals in 2019 missed the whole season due to injury and then the Browns took Jedrick Wills this year is there either one of those that you see that you kind of prefer going forward that you think could potentially make a future list like if we were talking let's just say 2022 or something like that that you think one of these Alabama players could stand out um I mean if I had to give it to any of them probably Wills um uh, Williams is out with a shoulder injury. Shoulder injuries aren't really as bad as I would say hip or like hip knee or ankle injuries for um, offensive linemen, but they can still play a huge part. Uh, if his shoulder is back up to par, then fantastic. Um, we'll see kind of how he, how he fares. Um, I would say that if the Browns have a resurgent year, then Wills will likely play a pretty decent part in that. Um, I would, and, and the Browns have always really had, you know, that one good offensive lineman, right? That, you know, that everybody in the league knows. And, uh, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the role that Wills is going to fill, um, you know, here in the future. Absolutely. Uh, moving over to tight end, uh, you have another former Sooner. And Mark Andrews. Uh, I I also thought that at least up for debate was the highest paid tight end in the league. Uh, Austin Hooper joining the division this offseason. But uh, I I don't have an issue with Andrews. I mean, he had 10 touchdowns last year. He was arguably one of the favorite targets for Lamar Jackson all year, it was, I think Andrews is at least a debatable choice. It's one of those things where you could easily say, uh, maybe put Hooper, but Andrews is also solid. I mean, my big thing here, right, is that um, based on Lamar Jackson's play style and where he likes to distribute the football when he throws, um, he wants – big reliable targets that are going to like be able to get, you know, either slight separation um, or at least just run the routes correctly. Mark Andrews, fantastic route runner. Um, He is great, um, you know, beyond 10 yards. Like he's great at kind of that intermediate area catching the football, um, which is where Lamar loves to place it. Uh, He had a fantastic season. He's only, you know, two year, two year player. Uh, just because you get paid the most in the division doesn't mean anything, right? I mean, he had he had more yards last year, ten touchdowns. I mean, um, 
Like, I, I just he had 64 grabs. I I don't know. It was – I mean, I guess I can see kind of, you know, um, maybe, maybe. Uh, but, I mean, the only one I was really even, like, otherwise looking at, I think, besides Hooper was probably, like, Cooper Cup. But Cooper Cup left the division. Okay. Um, also, our- not Cooper Cup. Um, scratch that. I was trying to remember who was it. Who else was it that? Uh, Are you talking about the tight end the Bengals used to have, Eifert? Maybe. He used I'd to be to, he was fairly injury all, prone. Yeah, I'd have Eifert to go through all my notes to look. <laughs> I just was like, I'm really confused. Uh, Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, I also was somewhat surprised looking at this division. How many teams look like they're looking to potentially line up in a lot of two tight end sets this year? I feel like the Steelers and the Browns are both loaded at tight end, and we might see some of that less shotgun, more pro-style offense coming up this season, and I'm, I'm for it. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I think that tight ends have been one of the more undervalued positions for a long time and having two reliable tight ends on your team I mean look at how we've done in Philly for two decades it's it works and it gives your quarterback somebody that they're comfortable with um, when the pressure is on right they don't they're not expected to make the pinpoint throw on the run, maybe throwing, you know, like off the wrong foot or, you know, it's, it's something that every quarterback loves to have. And if you can have two of them even better and the quarterbacks, especially in this division, you know, you're going to have two very young ones and likely here over the next, you know, year or two, um, sorry, you actually have three young ones. And then over the next year or two, you're going to have another one because I can't see Big Ben playing much longer. Um, I I wouldn't be surprised at all to see that transition. And uh, speaking of Big Ben, let's talk about the receivers in the division. One of them is his target. Uh, you had them as Tyler Boyd of the Bengals, Jarvis Landry of the Browns, and Juju Smith-Schuster of the Steelers. That's what's up, Juju. And it, it definitely just feels very different, I have to say, from a couple of years ago. When you would have probably, let's say, the start of the 2018 season been like, oh, yeah, Antonio Brown and A.J. Green, done. Like, <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. – it's not the same division it was. A little different. Um, I, I also know that – we might be missing some of those names. I mean, AJ Green is still in the division, um, and I know you you went Landry over Odell. Uh, just any kind of thoughts about uh, that in your three wide formation here? So um, let's talk about AJ Green first, and me including Boyd over him. Um, Boyd is going to be the go-to target for Burrow, one hundred percent. I mean. He had a he had a great not a not an amazing but I mean he broke a thousand yards five touchdowns but it's because the Bengals offense was um, 
not anything special. Uh, but I don't know if AJ Green's health is going to be, you know, I don't, just, I don't know if he's going to be reliable, right? And again, this was a 2020 projection. Um, and if he proves to be an injury prone guy, then Boyd's probably going to get more looks. Um, and then taking Jarvis Landry over Odell Beckham, um, I think Beckham gets a lot more attention based on his name than he, what he's. Um, what he's shown on the field comparatively. Um, I feel like Landry's the more reliable wideout. Um, I mean, he's had, he broke the record for most receptions in the first six seasons of his career. I know they both had surgery. Um, and so we'll see how that kind of impacts the season. But I think the, like uh, Landry over Beckham, I don't think was probably the biggest thing as much as me, including Juju Smith-Schuster um, over Beckham. And I think that um, there's an argument for either way. Uh, Juju did not have the best season last season, but look who was throwing to him. Um, I think that when he has a reliable quarterback, um, and I, I expect in trying to have a good, like, um, like you know, comeback season big ben is going to be looking at juju a lot um i i feel like he's going to have the better year um i mean you also have to look at who beckham has throwing to him right i mean there could be an argument that neither landry or beckham belong on this list at the end of 2020 because you know they have a quarterback who is prone to um Irrational games. So I, I felt like Juju was the better inclusion, and I think he's going to have the better season. But, I mean, I could very well be wrong, and Beckham puts up the big numbers. Really depends on how the Browns do. And trying to say, you know what, the Browns are going to have a good year is one of the dumbest statements you can make in football because the Browns never do what you expect. They did two years in a row recently, uh, but let's not pile on on the Browns too much. Um, we do have their selection here at running back, uh, Nick Chubb. Uh, it, at first, it took me a, a little bit when I was looking at this list when you sent it. Uh, I don't know if it's just because of all of the negativity that kind of surrounded that team last year. I didn't realize how good of a year Nick Chubb had for the Browns. Oh, yeah. Um, we're talking about just under 1,500 rushing yards, hitting 100 yards in seven games, eight touchdowns, and 278 yards through the air. It's – so we're saying between those two, it's we're just at about 1,750 as far as all-purpose yards. Mm -hmm. And that's for a team that – Offensively, we would have said struggled uh, for most of the year. Like, it wasn't smooth sailing being a part of the Browns' offense, but those numbers make it sound like he was doing fantastic. I mean, that's more rushing yards than Christian McCaffrey last year. Mm -hmm. So my, my thought here in having – 
and doing the the um, just chubb a single backfield versus having something where either your Mark Ingram's there or maybe even Joe Mixon um, chubs a three down back. And as you said, almost 1,500 yards, um, you know, over 1,700 all-purpose, you know, close to 300 carries. Like, I feel like he is younger, more dynamic than Mark Ingram. I feel like Ingram is a product of the Ravens firing on all cylinders offensively. Um, I know that he had about five yards of carry. I think he had like 10 touchdowns on the ground. Um, I mean, the Ravens offense was clicking on every cylinder imaginable. And I don't necessarily attribute, um, you know, a significant portion of that to Ingram. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Mark Ingram is a great player. I think he's an amazing player. I think that the argument for whether or not he is better than Nick Chubb um, is not as much of an argument. I feel like Chubb is the more dynamic playmaker. But I don't want to sell Ingram short. Um, I do not think that Joe Mixon is in the same tier um, as the other two. So I, I really didn't put a lot of stock into what type of season he was going to have. Um, with a new quarterback, you know, there's always that bigger focus on the run game. So he could very well have a good season. I just don't think that he is the type of um, like dynamic force and focal point of an offense in the same way that Nick Chubb is. I think that's fair. Uh, and let's move over to, you know, the quarterback position. We've got lots of great options available. We've got uh, four Heisman winners and we've got an NFL hall of famer, future hall of famer. That is in my opinion, Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, that being said, I don't believe that you picked Robert Griffin the third. No, I didn't actually. So I, so shout out to uh, to the best quarterback in the division, uh, Joe Burrow. Welcome to Cincinnati. You you had an amazing year last year, uh, record setting, and so I expect you to come in guns a blazing. No, I picked Lamar Jackson. No, no disrespect to Burrow. Uh, I actually genuinely believe he is going to be um, a a top. 10 quarterback within the first two years. Um, I think that he has the, he has the physical talents to, to succeed pretty much anywhere he goes. It's just Cincinnati has a tendency to, um, to be a bit of a, uh, a place where careers go to, to middle, right. To just kind of, thankfully it's not the, to the quarterback uh, grinder that the Cleveland Browns have historically been. But I do think Burrow is, and, you know, if you feel otherwise, feel free to chime in. Uh, I think that Burrow is an amazing talent. Uh, obviously, Lamar Jackson's returning NFL MVP uh, has, I don't want to say revolutionized the quarterback position, but has changed the way that coaches have looked at what is capable from that position and what options they have to execute different plays, um, different offensive schemes and how they're looking at and evaluating talent um, at the college level when it comes to how can I make a player like a Lamar Jackson work for my offense um, in a way that 
hasn't, you know, may have been said in the past about players, you know, going back to like Michael Vick. Um, but Lamar Jackson does it with not only a cannon of an arm, but, um, you know, a lot more accuracy and a lot more precision on the throws he knows he can make. Um, and I feel like his decision-making is um, upper echelon, top tier, which you generally haven't seen traditionally out of the quarterbacks that fit that type of niche, you know, the, the, you know, the running quarterback, the scrambler, um, you know, the, the guys who are looking to, to break out of the pocket, you know, like 30 to 50% of the time, this is a guy who knows when he should break and knows when he needs to make the throws. Um, and with experience is going to come, you know, even better decision-making. I think that some of the pressure got to him uh, in the playoffs, but, you know, there is not enough that can be said about this guy. Um, I, I think he's going to have a very special NFL career. Absolutely. I I don't I, – I think there was no other choice other than Lamar Jackson. Um, easiest, easiest decision. I mean I, – sorry, second easiest decision. Uh, Justin Tucker was the easiest decision. Well, that's um, true. But, uh, yeah, second, second easiest. So – so yeah, that's the uh, that is the that is the team, the All AFC North team for Brody Sports Talk 2020 2021. If you think that I am an idiot, that I am wrong, how dare I not include Odell Beckham, or how dare I leave off the legendary Earl Thomas? Feel free to throw as much hate at me as you want. Destroy me on Twitter. Uh, you could do what that one guy did on Facebook where he he shared a shared a nasty meme uh, at, at one of my posts. Like, why well, you got to do that, man? I got to hurt my feelings that way. I don't care. Come at me all you want because I want to hear it. I want to hear your hear your thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Brody Talk. And uh, I do want to thank you all for listening to another episode of the show. We'll have another one coming out next week. Uh, we're featuring a little bit of college football and kind of a potential trip that we could take through the season uh, to some different venues to watch college football games as it looks more and more realistic by the, the day and by the week that that is going to happen. So again, like I said, thank you for listening to us here at Brody sports talk. Um, on behalf of Sean, my name's Caleb Walgren, and we're signing out.